Horatio Spafford was a man familiar with death and tragedy. The Spaffords were grieving over the death of their first son to scarlet fever when the great Chicago fire decimated the city. Horatio, a successful lawyer and real estate investor, lost everything. After the fire, Horatio and his wife Anna were attempting to pick up the pieces when a good friend, the great evangelist preacher D.L. Moody, encouraged him to take a much-needed vacation. Moody was doing a preaching stint in England and invited the Spafford family to join him there. Horatio had some business to attend to, so he decided to send his wife and daughters ahead, planning to meet up with them shortly. En route, the Spafford ship collided with an iron sailing vessel, and all four daughters drowned. Anna was one of only a handful of survivors. Horatio immediately departed for England to rejoin his devastated wife. When the ship's captain told him that they were passing over the scene of the accident, he retired to his cabin. Overcome with sorrow, he wrote, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. These words were eventually set to music and became the great hymn of the same name, It Is Well With My Soul. However, the story did not stop there. A few years later, Horatio and Anna had two more children, a son and a daughter. But this son also contracted scarlet fever and died at just four years old. Horatio's life was marked by persistent tragedy and death. In the course of his life, he lost business and real estate and saw the death of six of his eight children. However, he did not surrender himself to anger, sorrow, and despair. Though he wrestled with these things, to be sure, instead, he defiantly declared his hope and trust in his sovereign Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Echoing the words of Paul, he learned to be content in any situation even death and loss. Ultimately, the Spaffords turned their grief into mercy ministry, founding a small community of believers in Jerusalem, working to aid the poor and needy in the early days of World War I. Horatio's great song challenges us to fight for joy in the midst of tragedy and death, to defiantly declare that in Jesus, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. In Jesus, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. Hey everyone, I'm Tom Kang. I'm one of the campus pastors here at Liquid Church, and I want to welcome you to part two of this audacious series, Prison Break, Joy in Hard Times, a series where we are actually investigating, trying to understand and actually apply this defiant joy in the seemingly worst places of life. I mean, just think for a second about that video that you just saw of Horatio Spafford, you know, one minute this successful, very influential lawyer, you know, father of four children, family of six, but in a snap, everything totally shipwrecked, and his four daughters, gone. 
You know, I mean, it, it just makes you wonder, what could possibly cause a man in that kind of horrific situation to pen those defiant words of peace? It is well. It is well with my soul. To, to actually have the semblance of joy and, and the presence of mind to write the words to that now very classic hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, written in 1873. I'm, I'm, I mean, honestly, how does that even happen? You know, I actually have three daughters of my own, and, and to think for even a second, you know, that, that, that one of them, even if one of them were lost to the open rage and roar of the ocean, let alone all of them, I mean, that is completely unthinkable, right? It's unimaginable. Peace in the wake of tragedy, joy in hard times. And yet that is the central theme of Philippians, the New Testament book that Pastor Tim actually introduced to us last week, something actually referred to as a prison epistle, right? And, and why is it called a prison epistle again? Right, because the Apostle Paul actually wrote it. He wrote that letter from jail during a season of absolute suffering. And just why was, it, why was it again that the Apostle Paul was in prison? Why was he thrown into jail? Oh yeah, that, that, that's right, because he was just loving Jesus. He was, he was serving others and, and loving on others. And, and that's the reason why Paul writes behind bars, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Chains for Christ. Now, can you just, can you just take a second to sort of absorb that? Just kind of kind of, let that sink in. Can, can you just imagine being incarcerated? Not because you've done something wrong, right? Not because you've committed some sort of heinous crime or, or you've stolen something or you've murdered or, or, you, or you did something terribly bad, but because, because you actually went to church. Uh, because you sang a worship song, because, because maybe you were wearing a WWJD bracelet, right? I, well, actually, maybe you should go to jail for that. But anyways, right? Can you just imagine this? I mean, following Jesus actually gets you a life sentence? How does that even happen? How does that even make sense? I mean, where is God in all this? Does, does God even care when this kind of thing happens? And honestly now, if you found yourself in Paul's situation, wouldn't you be tempted to just maybe just sort of, maybe just a little bit feel sorry for yourself? I mean, start to resent things? I mean, there you are. All you're doing is loving Jesus. You're just serving Jesus. You're just serving your fellow man. And all it does for you is wind you up behind bars. What did I do to deserve this? Folks, have you ever done something inherently good? I mean, it is totally, this is something that is naturally a good thing. This is not a bad thing. It's not one of those iffy things or questionable, but this is good. You intended it for good, but then some way, somehow, it just like blows up in your face and it winds up being very bad. You know, I, I shared with you the, how I'm a father of three daughters, right? And 
Basically, I remember the moment that our, our first daughter was about to be born. You know, I'm like this proud dad-to-be. I read all the fathering books and, you know, prayed and all that stuff, you know, and helped my wife get the suitcase ready and, and took the Lamaze classes with her, learned how to breathe and count, you know, one, two, you know, all that stuff, right? Just the, you know, perfect, trying to be the perfect dad, right? And, and, and we get there, and finally, after hours of labor, we finally have this baby girl, little Elisa, little alley, right? And it's just so beautiful. I'm just lost in the moment and Erica's crying and I'm, I didn't cry, but you know, I was just, I'm so like broken, so lost in the moment. I'm just like, oh, oh, I, I forgot my camera. I got to get my camera. And so, and so, you know, they're, they're, they're working on Erica or whatever, cleaning her up that, that whole, I'm sorry, but and that, that whole sort of thing. And they're cleaning up the baby and they put the baby on the bed and, and I get my camera. I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to forget this moment. I get the camera and I get right up to her face and I just, the flash goes off and Allie just starts crying and I literally thought I blinded my baby girl I mean she wasn't alive for more than five minutes and I'm already screwing things up and I'm just like oh my gosh oh my gosh and the baby's crying and Erica's like what's going on over there and the nurse like these two nurses they come over uh, uh, Mr. Kang uh, just this way let's go this way and I'm just like what's going on what I had been banished from the room. I was banned from my wife and my newborn child. I mean, can you just imagine this happening? (laughs) Now, where is the easiest place to go when something like that happens, right? Anger, maybe, right? Fear of being misunderstood. I mean, I I thought, like, during those minutes, I'm just like, oh my gosh, how am I ever going to explain this to Allie? What if she grows up blind? How am I going to explain what I did? You know, feeling sorry for yourself, blaming others, maybe, right? Like, why is there no sign? Why the no flash photography? What's going on here, right? It happens, right? We, We all try things, good things, but sometimes they turn out very bad, right? For instance, you know, some of you, maybe you've made an educated, prayerful decision about some sort of career move or or, or some sort of prudent investment, right? And not because you just want to get filthy rich or anything like that, but because you want to provide for your family, right? But let's just say that, you know, things don't work out and and, and you find yourself unemployed, uh, in debt, you know, uh, foreclosing on your home, right? These are hard times. Or... Or maybe, maybe you've given your best life, you know, the best years of your life to your children. You know, you're doing that whole PTA thing and, and you pick them up. I mean, you can't even count how many times you have picked these kids up and dropped them off thousands of times from lessons and practices and sleepovers and all this. And you never, I mean, you don't go, you, don't, you never get a thanks. I mean, that would be a miracle. But instead, what you get is somehow you get resentment. Like, I hate you, mom and dad. I hate you. You don't understand me. Get away from me right? Or maybe, maybe it's your marriage. I mean, from day one, from the get-go, you've always been the first to go above and beyond, always giving yourself to the relationship, to this person. Years and years and years go by, over and over, you're giving yourself, but none of that matters now because now, today, you find yourself completely alone. Hard times. You know, in situations like these and more, doesn't, doesn't the road down self-pity look all too tempting? And doesn't it look so wide open? I mean, it just comes to us so naturally, right? Like, ah, oh, you know, no one understands me. No one gets me. 
Oh, you know, woe is me. You know, if I just had her situation, if I just has, if I just had his set of circumstances, things would be so much different. I'd be a different person, right? And so we start comparing ourselves with others, and we actually wind up feeling worse, right? Uh, you know, I, I ran across this one definition that actually put it perfectly. It said this, self-pity is easily the most destructive of the non-pharmaceutical narcotics. It is addictive, gives momentary pleasure, and separates the victim from reality. Do you know, you got to admit, if anyone had reason to feel sorry for himself, it must have been the Apostle Paul. Because again, you have to understand, it wasn't just that Paul was in these chains for Christ, right? It wasn't just like, it was like a one-time thing, like a one and done, a night in the slammer, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't just a one-time episode, right? No. Paul's entire adult life was marked by pain and suffering for Christ. And can you believe this? In fact, it should be told, the more he leaned into Jesus, the more difficult it actually got. Like, can you believe this? I mean, I don't, know, I don't know where we get the notion that once we believe in Jesus, everything's going to be sunshiny and rosy and there'll be no problems. That's just not true. And check this out. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23? It's found there, right there in page 806 of your Bibles there. This is actually a different letter that the same Apostle Paul wrote. And listen to the sheer torment here. In, in describing his ministry, Paul actually says this. Listen to the pain here. Verse 23, second part there. I have been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. You know, some of you are asking, you know, what, what is this flogging? Okay, you want specifics? Here we go. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. In other words, five times the Apostle Paul received 39 whippings. Why is that the case? Why 39? Well, here's the deal. It was against the law to actually lash a man, whip a man 40 times because they were, the, the understanding was, was that you would kill a man with 40. So what you would do then is 40 minus 1, 39 lashings. So basically, Paul was beaten to the edge of death five times by 195 lashings from people who didn't like his message. I mean, some of you, you may not like my message, right? And you'll send me a nasty email. I don't think you'll flog me. Maybe you will. I don't know, right? But verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And we're, folks, we're not talking about the Grateful Dead here, okay? Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. It reminds me of the Spaffords, right? Now check this out, verse 26. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen. In other words, even his friends would, would, would stab him in the back. In danger from the Gentiles. Friends and foreigners would stab him in the back. In danger from the city. In danger.
danger from the country, in danger at sea. I've got nowhere to go, basically. Danger in the country, city, sea, and in danger from false brothers. Uh, Do you get the feeling that this man has been in some danger? Right? Verse 27, I have labored and toiled and have gotten, have gone without sleep. You should get a CPAP. Uh, I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And just to top things off, check this out. Verse 28, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. You see, The Apostle Paul was going around from city to city, literally building churches from the scratch. And and so you can just imagine him running around from here to there, you know, trying to make sure things that don't fall apart. All the while, you know, he's getting pummeled every which way. And then our last verse there, who is weak? And I don't feel weak. Uh, Who is led into sin? And, And I don't inwardly burn? I mean, come on now, folks. I'm human too. You can just hear it in Paul's voice. I mean, just reading the passage alone, just reading it is so painful. And do you see what's going on here? Paul, Paul is literally, check this out, he's counting the pains. He is literally taking an inventory here. Five times, not three times, not four times, but five freaking times. I've been whipped 40 minus 1. That's 195 lashings. Three times I've been beaten. Once I got stoned. Three times I got shipwrecked. I mean, talk about bad luck. Three times I've been in danger, in danger, in danger. He lists no more, no less than eight specific different kinds of dangers, right? Paul is actually counting He's got a running inventory of all his hurts and pains, everything that has ever gone wrong for this man. It's like he's keeping a scorecard of all the bad things that have happened to him in his life. And some of you are as well. Because you know what? What happens when we start to suffer is that at some point, we just start keeping track. Right? We, start, we start making a mental note, if not a literal one, right? And, and before too long, the inventory, it just feeds itself right into this hungry, destructive monster of a mouth called self-pity. Check this out. Christian author uh, Oswald Chambers, he put it this way. No sin is worse than the sin of self-pity. Because it removes God from the throne of our lives, replacing him with our own self-interest. It causes us to open our mouths only to complain. And we simply become spiritual sponges, always absorbing, never giving, and never being satisfied. And there is nothing lovely or generous about our lives. You see, self-pity is just another form of pride, right? It's this ugly self-absorption that retreats inward as it, as it taunts and tries to drag others toward itself. And, and no one really wants to have anything to do with a person who, who suffers from self-pity, right? Because everyone knows that, that just five minutes with a person who feels sorry for him or herself is absolutely like so draining, right? It's just life-sucking. 
right? Because everyone knows that there is just nothing life-giving about self-pity. And every single person here knows it. I, I, I believe this, the phrase, burdens of the office, is overstated. Yeah, it's kind of like, now, why me? Oh, the burdens, you know, what? Why did the financial collapse have to happen on my watch? It's just pathetic, isn't it? Self-pity. Pathetic, isn't it? Self-pity. Yeah, I, I think we'd all agree, right? But if we're honest, self-pity is also very tempting, very tempting as well, isn't it? Again, we, we just can't seem to get away from the ease and, and temporary comfort that comes from sort of self-medicating ourselves with the cries of woe is me as, as we allow, uh, as, we, as we actually wallow in this world where we think that we're just so convinced no one cares about us, no one even notices or understands, no one cares, not even God, right? In fact, last week, uh, Pastor Tim, he talked about being locked in, in this prison of pain. But, but you know what? Here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that some of you are actually locked in the prison cell right next door to that. It's the prison of pity. In fact, many of you have uh, open visiting hours there, don't you? Which, going back to Paul, m- makes his reaction of all the pains and struggles that he has faced all the more amazing, right? Because even after all that, that whole laundry list, not a single peep of self-pity was found on his lips. Me? Oh my gosh. You know, if I get like a nasty email, if someone says something negative about our billboards, I'm like all out of sorts, right? Yet Paul had this whole laundry list of truly terrible things. Yet not a word, not, I mean, not, not a word of pity found on his lips. As a matter of fact, I think it's even arguable whether or not he would consider prison to be in his top three worst experiences, yet not a note of self-pity. So, so what exactly is this man's secret, right? How, how, how do we break free from the prison of pity? The golden key is found right here in Paul's letter. Second, uh, second, turn with me to chapter 2 of Philippians here, in pa- page 815. Second chapter of Philippians. And Paul just comes right out and he says it. He gives us the answer here. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... In other words, if there's anything at all about Jesus, any way that you've uh, been encouraged, that, that you've been comforted, or that you find compassion in Christ, if there's any morsel, any fraction, then verse 2, then make my joy, then make, here's our word again, make my joy complete. By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. How? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Folks, again, this is a man who was writing all of this from prison, right? He's all alone in these 
in these chains. He's in chains for Christ. And who is he thinking of as he's in these chains? Others. He's thinking of you and me. And and you know what? Notice, rather than go to the place of a sort of, you know, passive-aggressive sort of whining, right? Could have been very easy to do that. Something like, you know, hey guys, you know, sure could use a hand in here. (laughs) Must be really nice out over there. But, you know, gee, you know, I I thought my Christian brothers, you know, I thought they'd lend me a hand, you know. They they saw me preaching the gospel. I got thrown in jail. I mean, (sighs) be nice out there, you know. Gee, you know, I haven't even received a care package or anything, you know. But no. No, instead he says, make my joy complete, not by sending me like a legal team or money or or even my favorite sweater, but make my joy complete by loving others, by considering others better than yourself, looking to the interest of others, Loving others. Folks, isn't this the exact opposite of what our instincts tell us when we're in pain? Because you know what? Usually pain puts the focus on on who? It, It puts it all on me, on my problems, on my unique set of circumstances, right? On my situation. And you don't understand, okay? And you know what? Right now, there are some of you, you're you're sitting out here and you're thinking to yourself right now, you're thinking, you know what, Pastor Tom? You don't understand. You don't get it. You don't understand. You don't know what I'm going through. You You wouldn't be talking like this if you knew my situation. And you know what? You are absolutely right. Absolutely. I mean, I don't understand, and I'm not gonna pretend to. I I don't understand the pain that some of you are going through right this minute. You know, maybe, maybe, you know, if some of you are single and and you're experiencing the the pain, you're enduring this this loneliness, I I get that I am talking out of ignorance here, right? Some of you I've talked to in emails and we talk after service and, and, you know, tragedy has hit your family or or some sort of chronic illness. And and I have to admit, I, I feel a little bit like a fool, standing up here speaking mere words to you. But what I do understand, what I do understand is this, that Paul is telling us that pain has the capacity, like nothing else in life, to actually put a laser-like focus right on me. To put all the attention, it just sort of shrinks our world down until we're defined by our own set of circumstances. And guess who disappears? Two people, God and others. In other words, this whole Christian thing, right? All, all this, this, what is this Christianity thing, right? It's, it's all about loving God and, and loving others, right? I mean, Jesus. Jesus, when he was asked, you know, what is the most important commandment? What, what was his answer? It was to love God and love others. Yet what happens is, pain's got this way of making us focus on the one person who is not in that equation. Me. And a lot of times... Let's just be honest now. A lot of times, the only reason we would even think 
to look towards others is actually to somehow sort of compare ourselves with them, right? In other words, we don't look at others except to see how we measure up against them. For instance, let me just go live here for a second, right? Honestly, for me, it's kind of embarrassing to admit, right? I'm a pastor. I'm not supposed to have this kind of struggle. But uh, money is actually a sense of, uh, a source of uh, tension for me, right? Not because we're poor or anything like that. I think primarily it has to do with probably where we live, you know, the Northeast, America, you know, this abundant society, right? And, And I hate to admit this, but I find myself susceptible to self pity. Whenever I watch that blasted HGTV, do you know what I'm talking about? Come on, don't pretend like you have no idea what I'm talking about. I know some of you women especially, I don't know what that says about me, but anyways, I know some of you struggle with that, right? For instance, on most days, I am perfectly content with my kitchen, okay? I have a fridge over here, it keeps things cold. I have a stove over there. It makes things hot. I even have this fancy little machine over here that washes my dishes and dries them. All that stuff, great. But the second I turn on that blasted home and garden channel, right, all of a sudden, I don't know, I just turn crazy. I just, I don't know what it is, but I just get this urge to like go to Home Depot, buy a sledgehammer, and just start knocking down my kitchen walls for no good reason. Oh, you know, we need to install, you know, Italian granite, you know, counter, countertops, you know. Oh, we need to, uh, sweetie, we just need to sell my car and buy a Viking Sub-Zero refrigerator, you know, that loads from the bottom over here. We need to get pewter fixtures and stainless steel and all all this stuff. Oh, Erica, how do we even live like this with such animals? Right? You see, folks, we're constantly swimming. Don't pretend like you don't know what I'm talking about. Constantly swimming in this murky pool of one-upmanship where, where I do not consider others before myself. No. As a matter of fact, if I am completely honest here, like just, you know, shed everything and, and just be brutally candid, it's all about me. That's, that's the God's honest truth, right? And there is nothing worse than when the gospel becomes all about you. It's all about me. It is all about you. Now, the greatest collection of me worship ever assembled on one CD. It's all about now I lift my name on high. All 20 songs, all about you. This amazing collection is great to share with friends, if you have any. Everyone can join in the worship with you, for you, and about you because you are unique and you love you there is none like me no one else all this can for do only 1995 like operators do. are standing by to serve you and i am why i sing and i am why i live if you order now you'll also receive a second cd of yule tide favorites Call 1-800-ME-ME-ME or order online at memyselfandi.com. 
Call today because no one can praise you like you. You see that, folks? I believe that many of our churches today focus on the therapy of pain without a complete theology of pain. That is, we have ways to process our pain and, you know, talk about our suffering. And I'm not by any means belittling that. That's important stuff. But until we understand the theology of pain, which is what Paul is trying to get at here, any therapy you receive is temporary and ultimately ineffective. It's not lasting. But you see, Paul's getting at a theology of pain that, that, that what suffering teaches us first about God is when life hits us the worst, when we are knocked to our knees and the temptation is to focus on ourself, what's the key that releases us from the prison of pity? His answer is found for us right there in verse 3. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Humility. The answer is humility. Can we actually, can we actually say that all together right now? Humility. Exactly, humility. Now, now watch how Paul unpacks this key. Watch how Paul unpacks the idea of humility in verses 5 through 8 here. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he, what did he do? He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. A cross. The symbol of pain and suffering that's at the center of our faith. Imagine that, our omnipotent, uh, you know, omniscient creator God empties himself comes to the earth as a blue collar carpenter and then dies a common criminal's death I mean, you talk about humility self emptying self how many of you actually seen this little gem right here right uh, talking about uh, it looks like a little security camera video, right? Uh, and, and see this guy here, right here on the left, right there, playing the, the violin right there, right? Uh, ordinary subway scrub, right? Actually, that's, that's Joshua Bell, and he's dressed in a baseball cap, T-shirt, and jeans. And, and he actually stood there next to this trash can inside the D.C. Metro for the next 45 minutes and played various classics by Mozart and Schubert, and no big deal, right? I mean, we see this all the time, right? Thousands of busy commuters running past them, hardly taking notice. I mean, sort of think of the Port Authority on a Monday morning, right? But what makes this situation so unique is who Joshua Bell really is. Does, does anyone here know, right? 
Joshua Bell is a world-renowned master violinist. In fact, three days before Bell sold out the actual Boston Symphony Hall, where even the cheap seats go for over $100. But on this particular morning, in an extremely busy subway station, Bell scraped up less than $30 in pocket change. No one noticed him, right? $30 in coins. Uh, This is interesting. Do do you want to guess how much that violin he was playing on was worth? (laughs) Here's a clue. Uh, It's called a Stradivarius. And that particular one was worth more than $3 million. $3 million. I mean, notice the juxtapositioning here, right? Uh, A master violinist with a $3 million instrument dressed in a t-shirt, baseball cap, and jeans. Jesus Christ, second person of the ontological trinity, God himself, dressed in skin and bones. Joshua Bell Master violinist, dressed in jeans, and the people, what did they do? They just hurled these coins at him. Jesus Christ, God himself, dressed in flesh and bones. What did the people do? They nailed him to a cross. You talk about ultimate humility. The self emptied of self. And so what you have here is the Apostle Paul. Think of it this way. The Apostle Paul, in essence, is pointing us to Christ, and he's saying, there's the master violinist. Guys, don't miss this one. There's the one. This is the one, that, this is the one that's the Messiah. He's the one that saves. There's the one that can save you from the hustle and bustle of life. Don't ignore him. Pause for a second and take a look. He's the difference maker, the game changer. Whatever you're so busy doing, wherever you're in such a rush to get to, stop and embrace the one who is trying to embrace you. Right? I mean, don't don't walk past, you, you almost walk past him. Stop. And take a look at the one who stands right in front of you. Jesus, your Lord and Savior. It's just amazing. Because he is the only one who can set you free from the prison of me. C.S. Lewis, you know, he probably said it best. Christian humility is not thinking less of yourself It is thinking of yourself less and thinking of Jesus and others more. You know, one of my uh, favorite preachers, um, Pastor Tim Keller, he actually puts it like this. He calls it a blessed uh, self-forgetfulness. You know, I I think we could all use a a little dose of this blessed self-forgetfulness. You see, what Paul is showing us here is that no matter what situation you're in, there's always true joy to be found in thinking of Jesus and others first, just as Jesus thought of you and me before himself. You know, I actually 
I'm thinking that I may regret this later. Uh, but it's like for many of you, uh, what you learned back in Sunday school, right? Where the teacher would come in with a little felt pad or whatever, right? And she would say, okay, children, how do you spell joy? J-O-Y, joy. Jesus, others, yourself. Isn't it so true? Only when you think of Jesus and others first, yourself second, do you experience the true joy that God has intended for you? Pain, pain has a way of making us number one, putting the focus on me. But joy puts Jesus and others first, and we become second. So now how about it, folks? Do do you consider yourself second second to Jesus and, and second to others? Or are you still trapped in the prison of me, in, in the prison of pity? Are, are, you, are you trapped in self-absorption? Or do you dare to consider yourself number two? Because anything less ultimately imprisons you and it kills your joy. In other words, unless you consider yourself second, you're just going to find yourself missing satisfaction. And, and actually, that, that's Paul's secret here. There's satisfaction in being second. I'd say what was missing was the satisfaction. My life before Christ was uh, focused on making money. My life before Christ was uh, a totally day in and day out uh, existence that was uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, uh, uh, an existence of self-absorbance. and, you know, just doing what you normally do when you're trying to maintain a career in the movie business. Loving Jesus is what's most important to me. And I, I know that sounds hokey, but it's the truth. My life is God's life in me for him to do with what he wants. My wife and I were living in Tucson, Arizona about 16 years ago almost and through the family we hired this cleaning woman she's working with us for about two weeks and my wife kind of notices her singing that she does every day in her work eventually after a few more days of this went to Augusta and said you know I noticed your singing and um, I was just curious you know why is every song about Jesus uh, perhaps There's another tune in your repertoire, so to speak. Um, And Augusta had a very interesting reaction uh, to the question. She literally burst out laughing in my wife's face. (laughs) I just had to do that, sir. And Augusta said, you know, again, um, understand that the reason that I'm laughing is uh, you think the only reason that I'm here is to clean your house. Uh, so my wife, she says, honey, um, I, I'd like to share with you something that Augusta just told me. And I said, what's that, dear? And she said, 
uh, well, she just explained to me that the real reason she's here is because in the future, you and I are going to become born-again Christians, and at some point after that, we're going to have our own ministry. And I said, really? Hmm. At that point in my career, I was making more money than I could ever wildly imagine, and just to, to hear uh, that idea vocalized at that point in time was utterly ridiculous. Uh, but um, that's the beginning of the journey for me. When I got to a place of willingness to just simply say to myself, okay, I'm willing to believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, and I'm now going to ask God to show me what that means, and I'm going to read the Bible and apply it to my life to the best of my ability to have that understanding, that's when uh, this whole experience became very, very real for me. I'm Stephen Baldwin. I am second. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul's message from prison, three words. I am second. I am second. Everyone from Stephen Baldwin, who had everything, to Horatio Spafford, who lost it all, in plenty or in want, whether your prison of me has the arrogant face of pride or the sullen one of pity, only when Jesus comes first do you finally find yourself and your freedom and your joy. It doesn't matter what your situation. Jesus and others first, yourself second. My name is Thomas Kang, and I am second. My prayer is that you would be second too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, there is no better example of being second than your son, Jesus Christ. I mean, how could he who is God himself put on skin, wear bones, and come and, and be a servant and wash my feet, and not only wash my feet, but also die on the cross for my sins? Thank you, Lord, so much. And forgive me, God. I'm, I'm often guilty of, of having 
you know, when I experience this pain, turning the focus inward, and, and, and Lord, that's just not the way it's supposed to be, Lord. But I, I confess to you, pain has a way of making me do that. So I, I pray, Lord, that you would give me true joy and that I would, I would learn to find true joy in looking outward towards you and towards others. Help me, Lord. Help, help me to remember that humility is not thinking less of me, but it's thinking of me less and more of you. I want that blessed self-forgetfulness, Lord. Lord, and that's my prayer for each one here, Lord, that that you would bless us with the blessed self-forgetfulness. Help us to keep John 3.30 in mind. He must become greater, and I must become less. Lord, make us all second, and you first, and each other's first, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.